We've talked about many important themes over these 20 lessons, but in a very real way, today's topic is where the rubber meets the road. You could say the proof that Christ is our Lord and that His life has taken up residence in our life is in our ability to forgive. No word is mentioned more, but practiced less among Christians than forgiveness. In fact, it could be we mention it for the express purpose of not actually having to do it. We've heard about it enough to know that we're supposed to forgive, but in my experience, we'll do almost anything to avoid the long, painful process of having to go through it. It's my belief that most people have no idea what forgiveness is, how to do it, or what it entails. Because if you've ever had to truly forgive someone, then you know forgiveness is one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that's our question. Have we? Have we released the offense? If we're being honest, sometimes it can feel impossible. And if you read closely, that's how the disciples felt in Luke when Jesus tells them to forgive seven times someone who sinned against them, seven times on the same day. Notice Jesus doesn't ask them to judge the sincerity of the other person's repentance. He simply instructs, you must forgive. And did you notice the next line? The disciples respond, they cry out, increase our faith. As in, Lord, what you were asking us to do seems impossible. The Lord can work with that kind of honesty. That's far preferable to a superficial, oh, I forgave him a long time ago. Why does this burden to forgive weigh heavily on my heart? Because I know how hard it can be to extend forgiveness, especially to those who don't even think they need it. The writer Anne Lamott put it, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. And I know there are, listening to this, more than a few of us who have been drinking that rat poison, living in a prison of something that was done to us or to someone we love. You've seen the signs, no justice, no peace, and we understand. And justice is important to God. But here's what also needs to be said as followers of Jesus. No forgiveness, no peace. Peacemaking in the Christian tradition must be rooted in the soil of forgiveness. There will be no peace among us until God's, pe- until God's people recover what it means to forgive. If you think you already know how to forgive, you're ahead of me because when I talk about people speaking about it, only later to realize they didn't know what they were talking about. I'm speaking of myself. I thought I knew what forgiveness was until I came up against some very hard things, and some difficult people to forgive. But one day a dear friend confronted me, told me that until I completely and unconditionally forgave those who'd hurt me, I'd be locked in a prison of my own making. He told me to pray the Lord's Prayer each day, even several times a day, And when I came to the phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, to do the last thing in the world I felt like doing, to call up specific names and particular faces and say, I forgive you 
and in Jesus' name, I love you. I told him, I can't do that. I'd feel like such a hypocrite, lying to God. And he said, well, tell God that too. But you must learn forgiveness is something you choose before you feel it. And it's only by the training of extending it, you will gradually pray your way into feeling it. And he warned me that once granted in the middle of the night when I can't sleep, that I want to keep taking it back. And that's especially when I'll need to choose again. He taught me that forgiveness is a process, not an event. But if you wait until you feel it, you'll never do it. I've come to believe that forgiveness is central to following Jesus, that we are never closer to the heart of Christ than when we forgive. I want to start today with a definition of forgiveness because one of the reasons it gets short-circuited among us is there's a lot of murkiness over what it is. So first a definition, then we'll look at the need for forgiveness, why the church needs to recover Jesus' most radical teaching to love our enemies. And then for today we'll just take up one final question that gets near the heart of how we can become forgiving people. And that's how we can forgive the person that may be the hardest one of all to forgive ourselves. But let's start today with a definition. And we can begin with what forgiveness is not. In popular culture, forgiveness is discussed often for its psychological benefits that you ultimately should forgive for yourself, to set yourself free from resentment so you can turn the page and move forward. That's an important consequence of Jesus' vision of forgiveness, but it's not at the heart of what forgiveness is. Nor is forgiveness excusing, minimizing, or dismissing what someone did to you as no big deal. It does not deny the pain or the ongoing hurt. Forgiveness does not mean refusing to take the wrong with due seriousness. God does not say to any of our sin, no big deal, I forgive you, it's fine. Recognizing the wrong is foundational to forgiveness. And because God is a God of justice, the wrong cannot be simply ignored or disregarded. When injustice has occurred, it needs to be addressed as fully and truthfully as possible. Nor is forgiveness a full pardon, releasing the offender from any consequences. Though the motive for any discipline meted out is decisive in determining if your forgiveness is indeed Christian. It's also important to say that forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness doesn't mean you'll be friends again. Reconciliation is the goal of forgiveness, but forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. So here's a definition from one of the world's writers who's helped me the most, Yale theologian Miroslav Volf whose reflections on forgiveness are not ivory tower abstractions. Wolf is a Croatian who saw his friends and family brutally murdered in an unjust war. He watched his mom and dad, who were Christians, work through forgiving the soldier who had killed their son, his brother. So here's Wolf's definition, quote, Forgiveness has the structure of a gift. Someone gives something to someone else. The one who gives is the one who has been injured. The one who receives is the injurer, and what one gives is forgiveness. The content of this gift, he continues, is not counting the wrongdoing 
that a person has committed against them. He concludes, you can put it this way, to unstick the deed from the doer. That's what forgiveness does. I find this to be a very helpful word picture, to unstick the deed from the doer. Did they do it? Yes, which is why forgiveness is a gift. A gift is, by definition, undeserved. It's not extended on the basis of merit or the worthiness of the receiver. Otherwise, it's not a gift. The undeserved gift of forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling, but a decision to unstick the deed from the doer. More than that, it is a voluntary suffering undertaken for a greater good. You are choosing to absorb the debt that the other rightfully owes you. And it looks like no longer painting them with the brush of memory for, once, for what they once did to you or someone you care about. Forgiveness, you could say, is choosing to keep no record of wrongs. I'm not going to bring this up or hold this over your head. This is not how I'm going to talk about you to others or even uh, with myself in terms of what you once did to me. I'm not going to relate to you on that basis as far as that might be. Unstick. Because thank God, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 12. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's how God has forgiven us, and he instructs us to forgive one another as he has forgiven us. I like how Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, puts it, People are more than the worst things they've ever done. No one wants to be defined by their mistakes. And just as I don't, so I'm choosing to unstick those deeds from you. Forgiveness is choosing mercy when what you feel like is exercising justice. That's how you know you have something to forgive. It was wrong. This is not fair. It is unjust. When we extend mercy, we are forgoing the justice that we believe we deserve. So have you unstuck the deed from the doer, even if they won't admit that they need forgiveness? Forgiveness is a gift given to the one who hurts you, and it's the last thing you want to give. But Jesus says we are to extend it not once, but 70 times 7, which is to say this is to be an ongoing posture, irrespective of what the other does in response. And maybe Jesus says seven times in one day to remind us that we will keep being tempted to take back the gift. And so we will have to keep making the choice to unstick the deed from the doer. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now some of these points need to be qualified. We're leaving aside the thorny question of trust. How can I ever trust this person again? Should I? Jesus talks about the importance of forgiving from the heart. You can say it, but how do you know you've truly forgiven someone from your heart? I'll just say as a rule of thumb, it's not only when you no longer hold on to the offense, but you actually desire the good and flourishing of the other, as impossible as that may feel today. And as we've said, forgiveness doesn't mean there shouldn't be consequences for wrongdoing, but it's all about our motive. Is our motive to restore them or to punish them? For now, we need to feel the sharpness of Jesus' challenge to forgive, to unstick the deed from the doer, when what we feel like is keeping them locked up in a prison of our judgment. 
And that brings us to the need for forgiveness. Forgiveness is fading in our world for a variety of reasons. Conflict and hostility are ever-present. In these polarized times, forgiveness is the unique witness that followers of Jesus have to offer to our world. That's the one thing the church has to offer, the unique thing the church has to offer the world right now, because forgiveness is not available from any other cultural institution. And it's sad because we know sometimes churches can be the most unforgiving of places. How often we forget that God's way was to overcome on a cross, dying for people before they agreed with him. Have we lost sight of something so foundational to Jesus and so desperately needed by our world today? The cry for justice comes from many directions, but where else is the world supposed to hear, we must forgive? There will be no peace without forgiveness. There's also, as Desmond Tutu once put it, no future without forgiveness. On this point, Tutu was agreeing with Hannah Arendt, a Jewish political philosopher. For Arendt, forgiveness is necessary because the wrong cannot be erased from history. Arendt was writing post-World War II in the shadow of the Holocaust. She cared very much that injustice be documented. But the problem, Arendt saw, is that time does not run backwards. The deed cannot be undone, and it qualifies the doer. The question then becomes, how does it stop qualifying the doer and qualifying the relationship I have with the doer? In Wolf's terms, how can the deed be unstuck from the doer so that the doer and the deed do not merge, so that the person can be freed from what they once did? Forgiveness says, I don't count it against you, and even if I can't quite forget it, I relate to you as if you had not done that particular wrong. Here's how Arndt puts it. Without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we've done, our capacity to act would, as it were, be confined to our past deeds from which we could never recover. We would remain the victims of its consequences forever. Here's how one commentator restates her argument. If we continually deny people the opportunity to have an identity apart from their punish identity, then you're inviting them to permanently inhabit their failure. In other words, not to change. And even if they do change because they are good-hearted, they will not be able to reconcile with anyone as long as they are presented with an identity that is attached to their failure." Close quote. Arendt's not a Christian, but she is reminding us that the primary service the church can offer our culture in this moment is to recover our Founder's teaching and model of forgiveness. There's no future without it. But a final reason we need to become free and wholehearted people, but a final reason we need, uh, need forgiveness is to become free ourselves. In the passage on forgiveness in Luke 17, right before he talks about forgiving seven times in one day, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves or watch yourselves. Right before he instructs them to forgive, Jesus warns his disciples, watch yourself. Why would we need this word of warning? Because when someone hurts us or mistreats us, what's our natural tendency? It's to look at them, to focus on them. So Jesus warns us first, Watch yourself. 
It's the same principle he spells out in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's easy to spot the speck in your neighbor's eye, but be blind to the log in your own. It's in making judgments about others that we are most prone to be blind to ourselves. This is related to another passage, Hebrews 12, what it's warning about when it says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, defiling you. As a word picture, I don't know what the sidewalks looked like in your town, but where I grew up, sometimes tree roots would push up the sidewalk and break the concrete. Even if the tree was chopped down to a stump, the sidewalk was still disjointed because the roots were growing underneath. In the same way, it can be easy to say, oh, I forgive, I forgave them a long time ago. That's like chopping down the tree and leaving the stump. Without the costly, messy work of digging up the roots, the sidewalk, your life will still be fragmented, defiled. Have you ever wondered, do I have to excise my whole relationship with this person? Will my life always stay broken into pieces when it comes to them? Well, if you don't dig out those roots and deal with your own deep hurt and anger by grieving and then making the hard choice to forgive, the root of bitterness in your heart will wreak havoc, robbing you of peace in the present and doing more damage to you than was ever done by them in the past. You may even be fertilizing that root by rehearsing what was once done to you, blaming them, feeling sorry for yourself, nursing the grudge. But the person you're keeping locked in a prison of your own judgment is you. It's obvious that our world today is full of so much anger. It's so easy to point the finger at others and so hard to watch yourself. Why forgive? It's the only way you'll ever be free. It's the only way you'll stop being controlled by what happened to you in the past. To turn the page, start a new chapter, we need to forgive. Makes you wonder how did churches become some of the most unforgiving of places. I think what we're missing is that we don't know what forgiveness is. We've lost <clears throat> the meaning of the word. Now exactly how to forgive is a different lesson, but I want to end today with what I think is near the heart of learning to forgive, and that's learning to forgive the hardest person to forgive, which is often not your enemy, not even God, but yourself. To illustrate, I want to turn to one of the world's great stories, Crime and Punishment, by the Russian author Dostoevsky. Some of us carry wounds from things done to us, but we also carry what may even be a deeper pain, our own guilt. It can be so overpowering we can't admit it to ourselves. And then there's shame, our chronic sense of not measuring up. Have you ever felt that no matter how many times you hear God loves you and forgives you that you just can't forgive yourself? And the proof is that you don't see yourself as completely forgiven? Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment is one of the great studies on guilt and forgiveness ever written. The protagonist, Raskolnikov, has killed a pawnbroker, who was not a good person, but still Raskolnikov can't shake the guilt. He's eaten up with it and can't bring himself to confess his secret. Often the only one a shamed person feels comfortable with is another broken person. So Raskolnikov confides in a prostitute, a young woman named Sonia. 
who's very kind to him, but even to her, he can't bring himself to name what he's done. He rationalizes that the old pawnbroker deserved it, that she was a blight on society, that he was actually trying to help. But towards the end of his book, here's how Dostoevsky describes Raskolnikov. His pride was badly wounded, and it was from wounded pride that he fell ill. Oh, how happy he would have been if he could have condemned himself. He could have endured anything then, even shame, even disgrace. But he judged himself severely, and his hardened conscience did not find any especially terrible guilt in his past. See, Raskolnikov can confess what he did, but his wounded pride won't allow him to face the full truth about himself. Dostoevsky says if he could just own up to the depth of his own sin, he could endure anything, Dostoevsky says, any shame, any disgrace, but his wounded pride will not allow it. And that's what shame is. Shame is wounded pride. Sonia, the prostitute, she loves him, the murderer, but he's unable to receive her love, and he can't receive her love because he can't forgive himself for what he's done. Because to receive that kind of love that undeserved love would require him to admit the true need of his true condition. And that's terrifying to the intellectual Raskolnikov. And it's also terrifying for good church people. See, it can look humble to say, oh, I could never forgive myself. But behind it is a wounded pride that refuses to rest upon Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. In the end, what keeps us trapped in our unforgiveness is not what was done to us. It's our inability to let God love us, all of us, and to admit that we need his washing, not just this or that part of us, but all of us. Our ability to love others is directly indexed to how much we have experienced the love of God. Yet how we experience love is directly indexed by how fully seen and fully known we are at our absolute worst, the places we're most ashamed of. And yet in that place, having been fully seen, to yet not be abandoned, but be embraced. You know what that is? That's forgiveness. That's why forgiveness is inextricably bound with our ability to love. This is all in Jesus' line. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Because the converse is also true. When you are experientially acquainted with the love of God that has not only unstuck your deeds from you, as far as the East is from the West, but has come near you at your very worst and embraced you. Well, you know what that is? That's the gospel. When we know the gospel, we can lay down our wounded pride and maybe for the first time in our lives realize that it really is Christ alone, my one defense, my righteousness. How will such light come to our eyes? Well, you can't manufacture it, but your hurt is God's doorway to your own mending. His grace will be the glue to your broken life. And you'll have something you never had before. You went through this painful breaking open. Here's how Dostoevsky describes it at the end of his book. How it happened, Raskolnikov did not know. But suddenly it was as if something lifted him and flung him down at Sonia's feet. He wept and embraced her knees. At first she was terribly frightened. She looked at him trembling, but all at once she understood everything. Infinite happiness lit up her eyes, and she understood 
And for her, there was no longer any doubt that he loved her. They wanted to speak, but could not. Tears were in their eyes. There they both stood. But in their pale, sick faces, there already shone the dawn of a renewed future, of a complete resurrection into new life, resurrected by love. Wow. That's what receiving the forgiveness of God feels like. It's both terrifying but liberating. For that one trembling moment, you're able to see yourself, and it makes you so happy to be seen and yet so indubitably loved. Dostoevsky calls it a resurrection into new life, resurrected by love. How it happens, we can't quite say. But when we see our own incalculable debt completely forgiven, it makes us wretched sinners, completely loved children. It makes us compassionate men and women who love mercy and who are learning to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. Okay, see you next week.